Part Two of The Lost Island of Atlantis by E. T. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Lost Island of Atlantis, Part Two. The island of which Plato discoursed and Pindar sang has indeed long since passed away, and its memory has become enshrouded in the mists of poetry and fable. The very echoes of its story have well nigh died into silence. Scarcely can we realize the remoteness of its existence. The scale of our own chronology shrinks to a point, and the effort to scan with any certainty the secrets of that abyss of time seems, in its futile presumption, alike profitless and vain. Yet, if traces are anywhere left of the sacred isle and its tenants, it would appear reasonable to expect them on the borders of the North Atlantic, on the edge of that sea of marvels and mysteries, still called by the Arabs the Sea of Darkness, whose surges once broke upon their shores. There yet remains on the eastern strand of the Atlantic a people isolated from all others, standing ethnologically alone, and having no affinity with the existing families of nations, strange and solitary as some old-world denizen of the Saurian age that had lived on through many geological cycles, outliving its fellows and congeners to confront at last the widely dissimilar types of contemporary being. Such is the Euskarian people, the Escaldunac, or Basques, the lineal descendants of the ancient Tiberians, who, in their turn, standing similarly apart from the rest of Europe, and possessing a literature which was already old in the days of Strabo, seem to represent some more ancient stock, whose existence stretches far back into the grey dawn of time. The ethnologic isolation of the Basques rests mainly on linguistic grounds. Their language, the Euskara, differs widely from all others both in structure and vocabulary. Attempts have been made to connect it with the Hungarian, or Magyari, with the less conspicuous Ugrian dialects of the Baltic, with the agglutinative tongues of Central Asia, and even with the surrounding Romance language or daughters of the old Latin, but alike in vain. Like the mutable genie of the Arab tale, it eludes at every turn the grasp that would retain it. It remains an unsolvable enigma, a perpetual puzzle, a pièce de résistance for laborious continental professors. Elsewhere and with other tongues there is influence and interchange, connection and derivation. This one alone rises unconformably amidst them all like the product of an earlier formation or the mountain peak of a drowned world. There are many things that suggest its great antiquity as a language. The pronouns, which elsewhere are for the most part irregular in declension, are here regular throughout. In all that great family of languages, which has been called the Indo-European, as comprising the European congeners of the Sanskrit, the pronominal inflections have a broken and disjointed aspect, as if made up of the fragments of earlier and dissimilar forms. Thus the classical ego is as different from the genitive me, as is the russo-sclavonic ya, from its possessive menya. 
Something of an analogy is presented to the conglomerates and breccias of the geologist, the cemented gravels and shell mosaics made up of portions of older rocks. Again, the peculiar phonesis of the Euskara points to a remote era, its mute consonants being hard and pure, unlike the aspirate and sibilant phonesis of later growths. It delights in K, T, and P sounds, and in its vocalization the pure sounds a i and u are largely predominant further as might be expected in a language that has come down to us from primeval times the few lexical affinities which can be traced are shared among widely dissimilar tongues now lying far apart on the earth's surface a few of its words are coptic rask saw a likeness to the finnish william von humboldt traced a resemblance to Attic Greek. Old in years, its vitality, as well as the extent of its original area, must have been great to enable it to resist influences which would have been fatal to a dialect less old, less widely spoken, or less firmly implanted. During the entire Middle Ages, it was never a written language. Less deeply rooted, it would have disappeared altogether, receding everywhere it still lives within the last thirty years it has lost eight leagues of territory in spanish navarre alone yet it still endures an ancient oak with little but the stem remaining the old forms are still preserved among these are some which seem analogous to those of eastern lands to the karmadaraya compounds of the sanskrit where two words a noun and its attribute for instance are so closely united that the latter only is subject to change or inflection the former remaining in its crude form and both together being fused into one inseparable compound in the sanskrit this fusing together of words is carried to a startling extent particularly in the class of descriptives or epithetics known as bahuvrihi compounds thus in speaking of a certain river an epithet is applied to it consisting of one compound word which word signifies whose waters were sanctified by the bathing of the daughter of yanaka again the euskarian radices or roots themselves are of a confessedly antique type monosyllabic aerial untranslatable in themselves fulfilling no specific grammatical function but conveying the central abstract idea whence as from a vitalizing germ radiate the forms of all inflectional and conjugational bases it is scarce necessary to revert to the fact that all language has three determinate stages first the monosyllabic represented by the chinese where as bunsen had expressed it quote, every word is a magnetized mineral forming itself without any outward change into polarity the nominal and the verbal pole and thus having for its centre as the indifferential point between the two the adjective participle quality position assisted by accent elicits the polarity required or reduces the word to its indifferential point the chinese expresses daylight by two words signifying it exactly the same order day light but he cannot condescend to subordinate the second to the first by saying with one accent daylight if he could the spell of monosyllabism would be broken End quote. 
the slowness of mutation here approaches that of the great cosmical changes of the universe it is only after a literature of four thousand years that some of these unchangeable chinese roots are beginning to be used as signs of grammatical relations in the second or agglutinative stage something of a crystallization has taken place among these isolated centres of thought and polysyllabic words have been formed the tone syllable constituting the axis as it were around which the others are built up thus forming one organism out of many syllables in the final or inflectional stage comprising the semitic and aryan groups the material and formative parts of a word are fused together so intimately as to be not always distinguishable speaking in general terms the second division may be said to be represented by the great turanian family of languages holding the mainland of the great asiatic continent while the peninsulas of europe and india are aryan and that of arabia is semitic the first or isolating class with its many centres of life and its polyp-like diffused vitality may be not inaptly compared to the radiate division of the animal world while the articulata may afford an analogue to the Turanian class, where syllable is agglutinated to syllable by an almost vegetative process of development. At the head of the sporadic Turanian dialects of Europe has been provisionally placed the Euskarian or Basque. But the Turanianism of the Basque differs widely from that of its supposed nearest congeners, the Finnish and Hungarian these latter have a peculiar euphonic system in virtue of which hard and soft vowels cannot stand together in the same word and when a vocalized affix is added to a stem word having a vowel or vowels of an opposite class a species of umlaut takes place and the vowel of the affix is conformed to the vocalization of the stem word the same principle appears abundantly elsewhere as for example in the plural of icelandic verbs and nouns and throughout the mesogothic of ulfilas nothing of this kind is to be found in the basque either in the modern improvisations of the escaldunac peasant or in those venerable war songs which bridging the gulf of many centuries relate the struggles of their ancestors the indomiti cantabri of horace with the armed legionaries of rome nor is it altogether unworthy of observation that there is in the character of the basque literature that which hints at the effete civilization of a most ancient people literatures like men grow old old in an irrepressible sadness in something of bitterness and sarcasm in that keen appreciation of men and things which is derived from commerce from crowded intercourse from long experience alone the oldest utterance is lyrical and from the vedaic hymns to the sententiousness of worldly wise proverbs is a transition from infancy to declining years to revert from the contortions of rose-tinted sentimentalism which stamp the anility of a people to the heimskringla or the fresh sagas of the north is to exchange the unwholesome air of a theatre for the clear beauty of the morning even below the throbbing life pulse and muscular vitality of homer himself 
we detect a despondency not unnatural in one who receiving the last echoes of lydian song and yielding a language already perfect with the growth of centuries may be said to stand at the close of a cycle rather than at the beginning such in its main attributes is the literature of the basques such in particular is that of the laborden branch as collected by francisque michel sententious artistic sombre in tone and rich in proverbs and apothems of a most shrewd and practical wisdom whence then did these people originate thus old thus different from all others and cut off on the east by an impassable chasm of unrelated dialects whence did they come or by what path did they reach their present home may we believe that they came from the west from some insular tract in the north atlantic were there at first two opposing centres of civilization and was the shock of their meeting dimly shadowed forth in the story of the timaeus and commemorated by the panathenaic procession wherein the peplos of the goddess depicted the defeat of titans and the people returned thanks for their preservation from western invaders the saturnian dynasty opposed to that of jove the war of the giants and the gods odin destroying ymir and his offspring have this a historic basis were it in our powers to look back from some pisgah hide on the long march of those who have preceded us we might perhaps see how successive races as waves of the sea have swept over and renewed the face of the civilized world could our vision penetrate the mists of the morning we might see how progress has alternated with retrogression and how each ebbing wave has left the depopulated earth to return to the silence and desolation of its primeval forests for decay is rapid as growth and the traces of civilization are soon lost when the foot of the civilizer is withdrawn it was thus that in italy during the days of belisarius and narsus in france under the early valois and in belgium after the return of the spanish provinces to the sway of the second philip the farms and orchards and palatial buildings the busy roadways and all signs and tokens of content and prosperity disappeared altogether in many districts to be replaced by the dank vegetation of fen and forest where the bittern brooded and the wild beast made his lair do these various mythi then all converging to one point receive additional confirmation from other and independent sources are these physical grounds to corroborate straber's opinion that the island of atlantis had an actual existence and that the narrative of plato is not all a dream End of part two.